Hey, this is Howard Jacobson, and I am really happy to be talking on the phone today with Chef Fran Costigan, uh, who is the current um, vegan culinary it girl. Hello, Fran. Hi, Howard. It's nice to talk to you this morning. Likewise. And always. <laughs> So I, I've been seeing your book everywhere in just the most unlikely places, like people's coffee tables, like office books, bookshelves. So it feels like um, one of these sort of kismet things. So your your new book is um, is gorgeous. It's doing very well. It's got um, you know all these reviewers are like wishing they could give it ten stars instead of just five. Um, so it, it's called. Um, Vegan chocolate, unapologetically luscious and decadent dairy-free desserts. So I definitely want to talk about that, about making incredible uh, desserts without animal products and and without white sugar and white flour. Um, but f- first of all, I'd, I'd love to start by asking my guests about their their path to plant-based eating. Because so far, I've not interviewed a single person who grew up eating this way. So I'm kind of curious, like, where where you, um, what was your, your journey to, uh, to join this movement? Well, thank you. I, I would love to tell you about my journey. Cause, um, and thank you for what you said about the book, too. That's, it's been very interesting for me, and I'm very grateful. I have actually met one or two vegans since birth, some of my students, but, of course, that is very that is more unusual or was way more unusual when I be started on my path. I mean, it really wasn't a starting on my path. I am a rather black-and-white person, and I changed my diet overnight about 22 years ago. I don't have what is sometimes called a veganversary. I don't remember the day, but I do know it was about 22 years ago. I was had recently graduated from the New York Restaurant School, which is a non-vegan school. You know, I was trained as a traditional pastry chef. My kids were preteen at the time, so I was a late adapter, as we say, or late to getting started in this career that I have, and uh, and I loved my work. I it was my first job as a pastry chef in a in a what I call sugar butter egg kitchen because it was, and I liked my work very much, and my boss liked my work, and my my work being the things that people ate, and customers were happy. But it was very clear to me that I wasn't feeling well. That symptoms that I just seemed to be part of my life for as long as I could remember were getting worse. And that is I had terrible stomach aches and allergies and real mood swings and fatigue. So I left the work that I really liked and just kind of remember that. Well, I actually went into rock and roll management, but that's a whole other story. (laughs) (laughs) I picked up a book while I was watching a band do um, a video for MTV. I don't even know if these things happen anymore. I was kind of boring with a heavy metal band. And I picked up a book by Dr. Anne-Marie Colbin called Food and Healing. Now, I'm a New Yorker. You know, I was born in Brooklyn. I lived in New York my whole life, except for um, a bit on Long Island. And yet I had never heard of Dr. Colbin or the Natural Gourmet 
cookery school, which she founded in my hometown of New York City. So from California, that's where we were, I called the school and I registered for as many courses as possible and enrolled in um, a couple of month-long course that she was giving at the time called Food and Healing. And overnight, I changed my diet. Now, I wasn't thinking vegan. I didn't really know what that was. I was I changed my diet to one that eliminated all animal foods, all processed foods, and then what I was doing was eating a whole foods plant-based diet, the diet that you and Dr. Campbell write about in whole. That's what I was doing. And as someone who was a chef, really, or a cook, or enjoyed food, all of the above, I never felt any sense of deprivation in changing my diet. I was like, look at all these new foods I never even knew about. And the bottom line is that I felt so great virtually overnight, I never looked back. Wow. Um, I'm really curious about that book, Food and Healing. Did you, was it sitting on the table by chance, or did you, did you buy it and bring it with you? How, how did that get into your trajectory? Yeah, that is a really curious thing to me. You know, I had heard or I heard afterwards, because my consciousness really expanded after that, that, that something else that happened after I changed my diet. But I, I went into a bookstore, and I was in Palm Springs or Palm Desert or, you know, one of those deserty places there, and I just went into a bookstore to get a really what I call a beach book, you know, something that wouldn't strain my brain and just be really easy to read. And I found that book sitting in this independent bookstore seemed kind of out of place. So it really was a case of when the student is ready, the teacher shows up. And what Dr. Colbin talks about in the very beginning of the book, I mean, this book has been probably republished many, many times since then, is that we are all bio-individual. We have some different dietary needs. But she talked over and over again, I mean, the theme of the book is eat real, eat whole, eat seasonal, eat clean. And it resonated for me. And I tried it. And how it really, I am not exaggerating, over, practically overnight, I had no more allergies. My stomach aches, which plagued me my whole life, disappeared. My energy level was great. I mean, and it was even. I woke, I seemed to need less sleep, and I certainly woke up more refreshed. So who wouldn't want to feel that way? And when I say, you know, my digestive upsets, I was a very obedient little girl. That just was my nature. So for me to refuse milk must have been a big deal. My stomach must have really hurt. Well, my mom, who was a good mom, she just didn't cook good food. We can talk about that. She has given me permission. My mother gave me ice cream for breakfast, chocolate ice cream for breakfast. Uh, no doubt the pediatrician said, get milk into that kid. And that was her, you know, that was her fix. So you can imagine, right? Wow. So you had all these uh, these health problems and you were feeling lousy. Did and, and, and you ended up with this book. Did Had you made the connection between your diet and the way you were feeling? Because, I, you know, when I, when I see, like, chefs on television or, or in restaurants, they generally don't look like a really healthy bunch of people. And obviously, if they're, if they're cooking the, the flour, butter, sugar school, they, they probably, you know, won't be if they're eating their own 
creations. Did 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 you feel like there was a connection between the the way you were eating and what you were cooking for other people in your health, or or was it just um, sort of this is the way it is? I think both, and that's a really good question. I think that intuitively, I believed that there must be some connection, but I didn't know what it was or how. I knew that when I overate sweets, and this is the way I was raised, you know, like in my, in our family, in my family of origin, not the mom family. I was different or made an attempt to be different raising my children. We were full when there were no more cookies in the box, you know, and usually overeating sweets led to eating some ice cream, led to eating some pretzels, and I understood, I, I came to understand that this is what happens, you know, the body's going to make balance no matter what. So when you overeat sweets, there's this expansiveness, and then you eat something salty, and it kind of pulls you back. But it's not a very healthy way to do it. I was raising, you know, my son and daughter, and I was doing the best that I knew how. I was choosing fresh food. I made sure that they had vegetables. You know, I grew up on canned vegetables, which were horrible. I never had I never had a vegetable. That's one of my favorites. It happens to be butternut squash until I was an adult when my future mother-in-law served it to me for a dinner, and I thought, what is this? You know, but of course I ate it. I was at her table, and I wanted some more for, for dessert. I, it's just not the way that I was raised with those boxes of tomatoes in the wintertime that don't taste like tomatoes or look like tomatoes. So I sought out fresh foods for my kids, but I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't, I, I thought maybe there was a connection, but, you know, on Halloween it was allowed to go crazy. And I thought about, you know, the way that the things that I served them, I really did think milk was the perfect food and that I needed to, serve them eggs because I wanted them to be strong. But when I made this change, it was so dramatic that I understood immediately that what I had bought into and, you know, people of my generation had bought into was just marketing because it wasn't the case at all. Hmm. So so you had been a, a pastry chef. You... Uh, you enjoyed it, you know. I guess there's, there's. I mean, obviously, you're, you've gone back to it. So there's something, there's something very um, satisfying for you mm-hmm. around that sort of creation. And yet, you had given it up bec- because of the the health issues. Like, what what made you say this is not for me? Well, I just wasn't feeling well, and I, I mean, to the, I wasn't sick. You know, I didn't feel like I needed to go to a doctor. I wasn't ill with it, with a named illness, but I just wasn't feeling well all the time, and so I thought, well, this is, you know, I have to, I have to figure this out, and that's why I left, or I have to stop doing this. I think that I thought, I just have to stop doing this and find out, find some other work. Um, I don't like people that, you know, I label people who are kind of, I'm a better eater than you are, or I'm a better vegan than you are, I label those people the food police, and I don't like, you know, I don't like any form of this kind of, I'm a better person than you are, I think that we're all doing the best we are can, and that we're all on our own path, and compassion should extend to every person, 
but for a short while after I changed my diet and it was so clear to me, you know, it just became so clear to me that without dessert, I was thinking, well, these foods are so nourishing, they taste so delicious to me. Now that the junk was cleared out of my system, I had cravings, but they were different cravings. In other words, I knew which kind of bean I wanted for dinner. I just things that appealed to me in a different way. I kept all of my grains and beans, all these new foods for me, out in glass jars so that I really would look and think, that's what I feel like having for dinner or lunch or breakfast. And then, of course, you know, I brought in the seasonal component because I think that's an important part of eating whole. But um, for a very short while, I did become a member of the dreaded food police. And so I said, all desserts, all treats are evil, not doing it anymore. That's it. So, no, I did leave that world behind until my then 14-year-old son, Michael, said, Mom, please, you can't put a candle in a big sweet potato and tell me that's my birthday cake. <laughs> and, you know, we still talk about it. He has two children of his own now. And that's, it was really like that. And it kind of made me stop and think. He has a point. I, you know, I'm feeling really well. We're all, we're all doing very well. The more that I learn about this notion of whole foods and foods that are not only real foods and unprocessed and whole, but I also look at how foods were used historically when I think about what I want to eat. Um, well, people do have, people who eat healthfully do have birthdays. Weddings, you know, and this really came to the forefront when Rip Esselstyn, who's, you know, I really admire the work of Dr. Esselstyn and, and Rip and the whole family and Dr. Campbell. Rip called me up and said, um, you know, Jill and I are getting married and we would like the chocolate cake on the cover of, this is my previous book, More Great Good Dairy Free Desserts Naturally. He said, we want that cake for our wedding. So I was like, aha. <laughs> People have weddings. And, you know, Thanksgiving is coming up. We want to be able to share. I think that sharing food is, is a good thing. And so what was I, you know, what to do? Because I started looking at the really few vegan baking books. In the day, they were mostly macrobiotic books, and they were really carelessly written. You know, it. I mean, you can't, you don't have to be a pastry chef to figure out that if you, if a recipe says use one cup of maple sugar or one cup of barley malt, well, one is dry, one is liquid. I can't imagine using a cup of barley malt in a cake anyway. And so they didn't make any sense. And the, I started taking teeny little tastes of things that were available and they tasted awful. They were either really dry or really gummy. And the biggest insult to me came when somebody gave me, said, here, try this chocolate cake. And it didn't. It didn't taste like chocolate at all. It was carob. So I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with carob, but it's not chocolate. They're both brown. That's about it. So I went into, you know, I called my kitchen the test kitchen, and I just took the foundational technique that I had learned in pastry school into the vegan pastry kitchen. And I sit about like a mad scientist, and I cracked the code with the chocolate cake to live for, which was Rip's wedding cake. And then I knew. Then I knew it could be done. So that's really what, that's what happened. And then I came to think about the idea that people were loving the desserts that I made. They are made with, I mean, they're still treats, 
there's still treats. So this is, I always say, there's no holy grail of sweetener, and this is, you know, desserts are not part of the, the food groups that we need to eat to be healthy. But I do desserts with benefits. Because my desserts taste delicious, I can serve smaller slice. My cupcakes are smaller. My servings are smaller. And I fill out the plate with fresh fruit. Mm. Um, that's a remarkable story. I'm hearing so many sort of echoes of destiny in it. But first, I just want to say that I would love to see a uh, the cover of a cookbook called you know the 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 book of whole food desserts that has a baked potato sweet potato with a candle <laughs> in it as the cover picture that's <laughs> that a is, great idea you know sometimes i don't put a birthday candle in it but those sweeter desserts and i mean vegetables the root vegetables and so on are very appealing to me particularly in the winter time i think that that my body likes that in the winter time and i will be very satisfied with that so I like to have a dessert just about every day, but I like a cookie. You know, something very small really is almost like a punctuation point to one of my meals. But um, I'm just I'm happy to be able to bring this kind of pleasure to so many people. And when people think that they're not going to be living a life of deprivation until they start eating the way that you and I eat, this whole foods way. For a lot of people, what they don't think, wow, there are all these new, wonderful, delicious foods to eat, they think, oh my gosh, you know, I'm never going to be able to have a, a chocolate truffle again or a little cupcake, and that isn't true. So it's almost a way to bring people in and open up the conversation you know, and last night, last night, for example, I did a book signing at Mushu's in New York City, and um, we know each other. You and I have met in person. I'm rather slender. I used 150 pounds of chocolate last year testing the recipes in this book. I didn't eat 150 pounds of chocolate. You know, I take the littlest taste possible, and that's just enough to give you know give me a nice feeling. Yeah, so I, I, I definitely want to get into the way in which the, the desserts that you uh, share with the world are a form of, of marketing, are a kind of an, an easy way in. But I, I do want to just ask a little bit about, because I'm really struck by that image of you sitting in a room with a bunch of heavy metal rock and rollers, <laughs> trying to make, trying to make a music video, and you've, you've abandoned your, your calling. Mm-hmm. Right, you're good at it. You loved it, but but it just it just wasn't working for you. And then to kind of discover that not only was it possible for you to get back into baking and pastry and the culinary world, but in fact there was this gaping hole in it that maybe you were the only person in the world who could fill. Did did it kind of did it ever feel that way that that this is you know that, that this is your superhero journey? <laughs> I love the way that you that you frame things. I I never thought, oh, I'm the only person in the world that can do this. But looking back on it, um, I do feel that because of my background, you know, having been trained traditionally, I would never use those ingredients again. But the foundational techniques are really important. When you're, if you want to make a tender pie dough, whether you're baking in the 
You know, I want to say I'm used to saying the traditional kitchen or the vegan kitchen. Today, vegan is pretty traditional, I would say. But to make a tender pie dough, the fat has to be cold. Well, I didn't, you know, I maintain that technique in my pie dough. I use a different kind of fat. You know, I do use some oil in my, you know, to make a pie dough. But I have options for people who are, in, you know, following different parts of the whole foods plant-based diet. I have, I, I stress measuring as a very, you know, you cannot make a batter-based dessert, a cake or a muffin or a cookie that is batter-based without measuring properly. And what does that mean? You know, my grandma made really good, or they tasted good to me as a kid, desserts and baked goods. But she she didn't measure. She said, you know, here, I don't know how much this. But if you want something that's reliable, you need to use not only measure, you know, you have to use the right measuring cup in my book trailer. I Because I'm a teacher, ultimately, you know, really that's what I am. I'm a teacher. I teach a lot of classes. I show this technique that I developed called whisk, dip, and sweep because, well, flour and the flowers and the cocoa powder and whatever, they settle as they sit in the container. So I have found whisking them up and overfilling the cup and so on really makes a difference. Get your oven to the right temperature and also use food that start with ingredients that taste good. You know, when you're using dates, make sure that they're not moldy, things like that. By quality ingredients. Use, this book is an all-chocolate book. Clearly, that's what it's called, vegan chocolate. But I'm using all high-percentage chocolates, and the higher the percentage of the cocoa mass, the lower the percentage of the sugar, for example. And, and that makes these desserts taste better because you're getting more chocolate bang. You need to use less, so more chocolate bang for your buck, so to speak. Better flavor and less sugar. Yeah, I mean, I'm here. You know, I'm just hearing the the energy and the passion just in in your voice about, you know, the 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 way in which um, it's possible to have really delicious and and luxurious and decadent desserts that are not only vegan but are also good for you. You know, there's a, there's a lot of uh, vegan cookbook authors who um, you know, who are basically trying to make their food seem as if it's not vegan. Right, exactly. And right. I, you know, my, my desserts, you know, I, I have a following that they don't, they don't know vegan. I've, I've had, you know, I had someone call me not too long ago who said uh, that she wanted to order this chocolate cake that her husband had at Sam's going away party or something or other. And I do very little private you know, work anymore, but if I'm around, I'm, I might be able to make a cake. So automatically I start asking questions, you know, well, um, do you have any other dietary considerations? Are you allergic to nuts? What about soy? And this woman had no idea what I was talking about. She said, what are you, you know, really? She said, what are you talking about that? He just said that was the best chocolate cake he ever had. That's what I'm after. I'm not after this is good for what it is. I'm after this. This is delicious. Oh, and by the way, you know, it happens to be vegan. I tell people, tell, tell the people who are eating your food afterwards so they don't have something happen in their head where they go, oh, it was, like, pretty good. But 
I, you know, I don't want to say that I'm wrong, right, and other other cookbook authors are wrong. It's not that. There's room for everybody. I never, but I wanted, I didn't want to just take out the butter and use margarine or palm oil shortening. I never used, I always used good quality ingredients before, and I wanted to keep doing that now. So, you know, I look at the different sweeteners. I use just enough to have the dessert or really what I call the treat to taste like a treat, like a dessert. My one of my my very first boss in a vegan restaurant, I had gone, you know, crazy about cutting all of the sweetener and he said, Costigan, you're making brownies, not brown bread, put some of the sugar back. And he was right about that. But I find I have found that I've been able to cut the amount of sweetener, cut the amount of fat in the recipes that have fat, not all recipes do, to get it to get a result that's really fabulous. And so that's what I want to do. I mean, I have a truffles, one of my truffles in um, Rick's most recent book, and I feel that that's a good example of a dessert that can give you some tremendous satisfaction without being a problem because it's high-percentage chocolate and non-dairy milk, and you don't even need sugar, but you can add some anti-inflammatory spices, ginger or turmeric or curry for, you know, a curry blend, for example. And then you, it's more, you feel like you've had more than just a little piece, a little square of dark chocolate. You've had something that's just velvety, luscious in your mouth um, and kind of done no harm, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, and I, and I, I love that... You're concerned not just with the vegan part. You were telling me about the, the the T-shirt you just saw that says "Anything you can make, I can make vegan." Right. Which, which is which is cute and empowering. And yet, you know, I live in uh, North Carolina. Like, I'm not sure I want like vegan pulled pork. Exactly. Yeah. Or or, or even like you know vegan mac and cheese on a regular basis. Right. Um, and and so there, you know, I really appreciate that to to a great extent. You know, it, 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 your, your desserts don't feel like a compromise, but they feel like a really delicate balancing act mm-hmm. around, around you know, delicious, vegan, and healthy, these three uh, kind of equally important poles for you. Right. I agree with you. You know, when I teach, I, I differentiate. The word vegan is a very important word. You know, it has, there are particular connotations for some very positive and some not so positive. But, it, you know, in terms of nourishing ourselves, I used to go, I go to the Fancy Food Show, the International Fancy Food Show and the Natural Products Expo most years. And there used to be an enormous difference between the two trade shows. Today, I feel like it's almost like the same show. And it's real clear at the Natural Products Expo that you can get vegan jelly beans, you know, vegan mac and cheeses like crazy. I'm not saying that that's wrong, but to eat that all the time, I mean, it's just not something that I eat. I grew up on, what was that, Kraft, the box thing, Kraft macaroni and cheese? Yeah. Yeah, right. That was like a big treat in my house with TV dinners. But I differentiate when I I teach 
first of all, people are very surprised when they come into my classes because I am teaching dessert classes and I want to empower people and get them. i like, you can do this. Just read the recipe all the way through, make sure you understand it and follow the directions. And you can do this. These desserts are actually easier than the traditional desserts. At the same time, on my teaching table, there's always a big bunch of kale or something like that. And, and people say, oh, we're going to have chocolate-covered kale? <laughs> I said, no. I'm sure you can find that in the supermarkets today, but this is to make the point that this is what I eat, and this is my treat. You know, this is the basis of my diet, and this is my treat. So um, I call... I, can, I say that there there are people who eat whole foods, whole food vegan, whole food plant-based vegans like you and I and many of my friends, most of the people that, you know, many of the people in my life. And then there are the candy bar vegans. And I don't think that that's healthy. You know, I mean, it's not healthy. We know it's not healthy. So vegan doesn't necessarily equal healthier diet, Right. Right. But, you know, so one thing, and you, you'd mentioned about the food police, and I think one way in which your recipes and your outlook is challenging is that it's, for a lot of people, we go all or nothing. Uh-huh. So, so if we, if we, if we latch on to a, to a philosophy and all of a sudden we don't have oil anymore, then mm-hmm. we say we ne- we never have oil. Right. You know, even, even at a wedding or, uh-huh. or, or, or a birthday, um, you know, and I think there's there there's ways. I know there's you know there's definitely people, and I've talked to people, and I certainly you know believe and honor them that they they feel like they have a food addiction, and so you wouldn't tell an alcoholic you can have one drink on your birthday. Right. But I think for 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 most of us, um, we are you know, there's there's a certain kind of fear of slipping back into some sort of food depravity that means we be, we become if not food police for others at least food police for ourselves and uh and don't trust ourselves to to have simple joys right i think i think that's a really a, a good point and you know I, I hear that a lot i've been teaching in very diverse venues i was in the London Veg Fest and the Paris Veg Fest recently and the Atlanta Veg Fest. And it's very striking to me that people are asking the same questions no matter where I am. You know, the accent might be different, but basically the questions are the, are the same. You have to know, you, you know, you get to know who you are and what you can have. For people who are on a completely, you know, oil-free diet, I have recipes in this book for you. You know, I have an an orange juice and tahini-based truffle, and if the tahini is too fatty, you know I have something else. If you're a person that feels you can have, a, you know, a treat without completely falling off whatever your wagon is, then you go for it. Um, and if not, then that's, you know, there are pe- for some people, fruit is a problem, you know, even having fruit. What I found in my own life and what other people have told me in their lives after they've moved into, you know, eating a a very well-balanced whole foods diet, the one that's balanced for them, is that those kind of all-or-nothing cravings go away. I never would have imagined when I was growing up that I could eat one cookie. I, I couldn't imagine that. I wasn't kidding when I said in my family... We were finished. We were full when there were no more cookies left in the box. 
I eat one now, and I'm fine. That's really what I want. I mean, always, I, I can't say always, but basically that's the truth. And I think because my, ba- my diet is so well-balanced and so satisfying to me and I feel so well, that those kind of binges just have, that binge eating, the notion of that has completely disappeared. I don't want any more food hangovers ever. That's how I used to feel. I don't want, I, if I eat too much sweet, I feel it right away. And that might just be a little bit. So that one cookie or that one very small piece of cake, um, or last night I served uh, mini gluten-free brownie bites. And nobody knew they were gluten-free. People who weren't there because it was a vegan book signing just came in because it looked like fun. Didn't know that these were gluten-free. There's a These brownies are made with um, prune puree, prunes, and chocolate have been paired historically in, you know, French desserts for millennia, and it works. So you're getting a healthy dose of fiber. You can take out most of the fat, if not all of the fat. And But that's not why it's there. It's there because it tastes good anyway. So, I, you know, I can have one, and believe me, I can't have another. This is astonishing to me still, to, to even say this out loud and hear myself. Uh, well, t- uh, you know, t- to... As as I have uh, transitioned, and I was certainly, you know, a, a binge eater of just anything that tasted good, and I still mm-hmm. I still feel like it's very easy for me to eat until it hurts. Mm-hmm. Right. I was watching a, a Louis C.K. Um, comedy special, and I was re- I was really resonating with one of the things he was talking about. He says he he can't imagine people who like push away from the table and say, "Well, I have just fulfilled my nutritional requirements with this meal." <laughs> it's like that's not when you stop eating. You stop eating when you hate yourself. Uh... And, and and yet, as I've as I've become, you know, my, and my transition has certainly gone through uh, several healthy food police stages, where mm-hmm. I, where there was I, really in my mind an opposition. Between tastes good and is good for me, mm-hmm. um, and and I find as I'm coming around and I'm maturing in many ways, it's the the distinction is vanishing that the food that tastes good is the food that's good for me, which uh-huh. which is kind of which is kind of like a nice place to be. It's like you know every other animal on the planet eats what it likes because it's good for it. Yeah, that's a great place to be. And I, and I understand it. I mean, I just, I live alone and I, I live in New York City, so I would never have to cook a home cooked meal if I didn't want to 24 7. But I love cooking for myself and I find that, you know, still what I crave is, it's exactly what you're talking about. The food that's good for me is what I crave. Um, and I, and I make sure to have ingredients and cooked food, you know, in the house. And and now it's it's gotten suddenly much colder here. So, you know, I'm looking at lentil soups and grains and lots of cooked greens and you know, it just they this is this isn't deprivation at all. These are foods that <clears throat> well sure they satisfy my nutritional requirements, but they taste absolutely delicious to me too. You know, and then yeah, I have truffles hanging around and a piece of whatever. It's just so interesting, the emotion. You know, food brings up such emotions, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's 
one of the things you were saying. I taught a class in Atlanta, Georgia last week at a really terrific culinary school. And I wondered, you know, with the class fill, it was in, wasn't in a vegan and it did fail. It failed plus one, actually. But I, wherever I am, I, I ask, is there anybody here from Brooklyn? Because there seems to be someone from Brooklyn in the room everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean, I lived there till I was five. But sure enough, there was. So I decided. Uh, nobody no, nobody uh, who grew up in Brooklyn can afford to live in Brooklyn anymore. <laughs> this is another story, and that's for sure. Believe me, I'm aware of that. I mean, this lovely woman was living in Atlanta, but she's like, I'm from Brooklyn, and I know the cake you're talking about. I demonstrated a cake in the book called the Brooklyn Blackout Cake, and it was, this was a, one of the favorite cakes when I was, really, if not my favorite cake when I was growing up, and it, it wasn't just that the cake was delicious. I don't remember the cake, you know, I'm talking about as a 10-year-old or a 6-year-old. I don't really remember the cake. I remember the emotions around it. My dad used to go to Ebinger's Bakery in Brooklyn on the weekends to get this cake. It was um, a very well-known bakery. Molly O'Neill in her New York cookbook did pages and pages on this cake. There's, If you Google it, people have different ideas about how it was made. And other bakeries tried to replicate the cake, too, but it was only the Ebinger's Bakery cake that was the winner. So it's a very easy cake to make. Essentially, it's chocolate cake layers that are split, and you don't have to be fussy about it. The top layer is going to get crumbled, and you throw crumbs on top, and then you smear, slather chocolate pudding, as is the filling and the frosting, so it's not a fussy kind of thing. You're just putting this chocolate pudding all over the cake, and then you throw crumbs. The hardest part is you have to remember to kind of have your broom out because it's a little messy. And it's just a delicious cake and can be made gluten-free. Most of my cakes, if not all, are at least 50%, at least 50% whole wheat pastry flour. And this cake, I think this cake is made with water. You could use non-dairy milk if you want, but, you know, really lowering the amount of oil. Uh, I mean, fat in the non-dairy milk. I like using non-dairy milk because I think you're getting some nutrition and so on, and the pudding is is extremely low-fat and easy to make. Well, people went crazy, just crazy for this cake. They, eat, they ate it up, and this woman was so happy because she's like, I haven't seen that since I was a kid in Brooklyn. But it's a wonderful cake, and I loved doing the research in the book to find things out, like, well, why was it called? I wonder why it was called this blackout. Why was it called the blackout cake? And it, actually there was a nod to the World War II blackouts. You know, and I learned a bunch of interesting things. I mean, there's always something to learn. Like people used to say, ask me in, in class, how do I know if the chocolate is vegan? And I would think to myself, well, if it's not milk chocolate, it's de- vegan. What do you think? It's not true. In this country, up to 12% milk or milk solids is allowed in chocolate that's labeled dark chocolate or is not labeled milk chocolate. It is disclosed on the package. It has to be disclosed. But I suggest that people read labels when they're buying ingredients, right? We know that. Right. Do you, do you worry at all, be, you know, being a, so um, connected with chocolate about uh, social and environmental aspects of chocolate? Do you have certain, um, you know, brands or, you know, is that something that you talk about or think about that, uh, 
you know, the idea of uh, chocolate being uh, harvested and processed environmentally and socially conscious Oh, absolutely. Ways? I talk about that in the book, um, about the non-slave chocolate and ethical chocolate. It's shocking to me, and to mo- many people have no idea how, I mean, we wouldn't, necessarily think about slavery in the production of our food today still, but very much so in the production of chocolate and sugar in particular. So, um, you know, I make the point that I use brands of chocolate and sweeteners or, you know, I look for food that's produced ethically, slave-free chocolate, if you want to call it that, and I have a resource list in the book of, you know, there are many different brands and more all the, all the time. Um, I feel very grateful. Grateful isn't a big enough word that my children, my grandchildren, myself, you know, we're here and I'm having this wonderful time talking to you and it's not an issue that, you know, they're not in the jungle doing this at best. This is, it's very hard work producing chocolate, harvesting the bean. You know, chocolate is a bean. Oh, it's a plant. It's a plant. (laughs) It's a bean. I always say that. But this isn't really, this isn't humorous at all because the jungle is hot, sweaty. There are machetes involved. You know, that these cocoa beans are very big. They're like footballs and heavy and they have to come off the tree. So the idea that there is still slavery involved and the production of chocolate is heartbreaking to me, and so I do make the point that the recipes will work with any high-percentage chocolate that tastes good to you, as long as you stay within the percentages listed in the recipe. But it's a very, it feels very important to look at what is ethical, what is fair, as, mm-hmm. and, and environmentally. Um, cocoa is a very, chocolate is a very, heavily sprayed crop, very heavily sprayed. So unless we're buying organic chocolate, we're ingesting herbicides and pesticides, and there's a terrible impact on the environment. Also, the worker, you know, the workers get sick. So I think these are all issues we need to look at. I look at this with all of my food choices, but definitely with chocolate. I'm glad that you that you asked about that. Right. Well, you know, because I, I feel like... Um... As we're trying to get people into the whole plant food world, it's very important to not talk about stuff like this um, mm-hmm. up front in you know in sort of mainstream conversations. Just you know, like if you could you know eat a carrot, like that's right. where I want that's where I want you to go. And yet, uh, when I talk to vegans, I often get frustrated at what I feel is a very limiting definition. Now, I gr- I grew up keeping kosher. And, and the, the rules of kosher are, you know, thousands of years old. Yeah. And, um, th- frankly, I don't think they, uh, they have evolved the way the people who came up with them in the first place would have evolved them had, had they known about, you know, th- that there are kinder ways to kill animals, mm. that, that, that ecology is important that food grown uh, under slave conditions should not be considered. So, so I started following uh, what a, a rabbi that I, I admired started calling eco kosher, which is we, we need to have different definitions. And I kind of feel like we need to have a a definition of vegan that is, 
you know, if, if we really want to be cruelty free, we want to be cruelty free to, um, to other humans, right. to, to the environment, to our children. Whereas if we, you know, I feel like, I feel like GMOs should not be considered vegan. Well, GMOs, yeah, that's, that's another story. You've just said so much. That's so rich. I mean, all of these, I'm, I'm Jewish with a non-Jewish last name, but I am, I also was raised Jewish and my grandma was kosher. These desserts are all parv, naturally, because there's no dairy in them, right? So I right. do. Which, which, which means that you can, you don't, you, they're, uh, they're like home free. You can eat them with anything. Right. With meat or milk, meat or dairy meals, right? That's what it is. So, I have run into, um, a, no, I, I met a rabbi, a female rabbi, a couple of years ago. She met, actually married my daughter and her husband, and she is vegan and very eco-aware. And I agree with you 100% that if, you know, vegan, the, the, the definition of vegan that I, you know, heard originally was, a, you know, a, a diet without any animal foods, but a lifestyle of compassion and compassion for the animals and compassion for each other. And that, and that, and compassion for ourselves. To me, that means feeding ourselves, taking care of ourselves in the best possible way, caring about the earth. How, you know, how can we not? And caring about all of the citizens of the earth, the growers and the other people who are eating or not eating food. You know, I, I wish we could, I look at the books, you know, with the word diet in them, and they're uncountable on a site like Amazon. But I think about all the people in the world who don't have enough to eat, and it breaks my heart. You know, I think we could all, in the Western world, eat a little less, and everyone could be fed. I don't buy into that GMOs are going to feed the world. It's scary to me. I mean, we used yeah. it. shouldn't be considered vegan. When I was doing my um, dessert demo in Paris, there was a translator, and I said, I was talking about sugar, and I said, well, for a long time, Vegans relied on beet sugar because it's never processed through bone char. I said, but that is not, as far as I'm concerned, that is not a choice because beets are practically 100. They're really, it's a GMO crap. And this French woman turned to me and she said, not here. We yeah. don't do that. <laughs> so it's scary, the GMO. I mean, I just read about G. Did you just, did you see the thing about the, GMO salmon that's being developed. Yeah, yeah. I just saw an interesting article t talking about all the diseases in farmed salmon are actually nature's cure for the problem of farmed salmon. Yeah. <laughs> so that, you know, but in getting back to this idea of whole, of wholeness, that, you know, any, anytime we have a problem with nature, <laughs> it's our problem. It's our problem because Mother Nature is going to win. She is winning. And we really need to pay attention to that. My maple guy, Pete is his name, Pete um, Kanek, is a former New York school teacher, and he went to make maple syrup. And he oh. told me something really interesting that I think talks very much to the fact that, you know, we can't be doing what we're doing to the environment. There is a measure of sweetness called BRIX, B-R-I-X. That's a measure of any sweetener. And the bricks of maple syrup has declined about four percent over the last, or four or five percent over the last ten years. 
That's because the weather's changed so much. The trees aren't getting the what they need in terms of cold, the amount of the number of cold days, or they're getting too much warm days, or whatever. I'm not a scientist, but that's so interesting because we, you know, we hear more about the oceans and land that's parched and the storms, but here even something like a maple sap is changing too. I thought that was a real eye opener. Yeah, and it's you know it it's a um, it's real and it's a metaphor that you know the more we divorce ourselves from the real sweetness of life and we have to we have to compensate with these artificial and and tortured sugars. Mm. Um, you know that that uh, like I'm a gardener and and bricks is a very important measure of the. The quality of the food produced of, of uh, fruits, fruits and vegetables, and we, I can see how really honoring the ecosystem on having a, you know I have um, I have a, a, a an employee force of about ten thousand red wiggler worms in bins. Cool. And and you know if they're not if they're not healthy and happy if I'm torturing the soil with uh, with chemicals they can't survive and they can't do their thing and I get crops that are that are so poor quality like those t- you know box tomatoes you were talking about that I have to you know artificially amp them up just to just to be able to get them down. That's I mean I just love that that picture of you doing that. I you know I live in an apartment in New York City. I don't. I don't have a garden, or I don't have a garden plot. But my daughter in Yardley, Pennsylvania, and her family do, and my son in Los Angeles do. And I visit as often as I can. I love watching the kids are involved in the production of the food. So they eat, they eat every kind of vegetable you can think of because they've been growing it, and they cook. But I was I was in um, L.A. to. My my kids in Los Angeles are filmmakers, and they did my book trailer, my book video, my little book movie. It really was like a movie. And one of the kids, one of the girls, brought me a nectarine straight from the tree. Now, I want to tell you, I shop in farmer's market, and you've heard me say a number of times that I eat seasonally, but mm-hmm. it was like tasting a nectarine for the first time. It was so good. You can imagine, right? Right from the tree. And so, there you go. And everybody really, I mean, to be able to grow our own food, we know we know what we've used or not used, and it's a lot less expensive and so on. It's just, you know, it's nature. I, I'm on the advisory board of the New York Coalition for Healthy School Food. It's a wonderful organization, and there are some plant-based schools now in the greater New York area. Uh, New York State, but I will tell you that I was heartbroken the first time I went in to talk to the kids, and I had an apple with me. Well, they did know what an apple was. They knew. I said, what is this? And they said, an apple. And I said, and where does the apple come from? And they said, the supermarket. Uh-huh. Oh, broke my heart. You know, this disconnect from our food. So um, people like you and Dr. Campbell, they are just bringing what we always knew, but somehow collectively forgot, I guess, because convenience back into the forefront. This is food. This is not brain science. I asked my mom recently. My mom is 90. So I asked her why she fed us 
the kinds of things she did because I know that she loved us and I know that she wanted us to be healthy. I said, why did we have so many, you know, why were TV dinners, you know, a treat or the the canned and frozen foods? And she said, because when these foods became available, they were heavily advertised as feed your family well, and she, she bought into it. This is the future. This is the best way to feed your family. And so we really forgot. The food chain has got broken. Yeah, which is one of the reasons I'm so pleased that the plant-based movement has has become so big uh, that you have an alternate place to look for your food advice than the USDA. Oh, yes. <laughs> you know that you, that, you're, that that your mother living now raising kids um, has has somewhere where she can kind of have have someone else have her back if she says no to milk and, and right. no to, to to eggs and and, and beef. Right, exactly. And I mean, you know, I am definitely of a certain age. I don't take not one medication. I had my doctor, my internist, who's a friend of mine, asked me to go and have a full checkup recently. So I did, included a stress test, and I took my numbers, you know, my test results in, my blood test results in, and the young cardiologist said, nobody has numbers this good unless it's a hereditary situation. And I said, well, (laughs) I guess I got it all, because everyone in my family has heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, and stroke. Everyone. And uh, quite a lot of cancer. And um, he he, he just, he didn't, he wouldn't make the connection. I believe that he must have made the connection, but he said, it can't be your diet. well, I, I know it's my diet. I've watched what's happened over the years. As I'm eating this way, I have a lot of energy. I mean, knock on wood, I'm superstitious too. And I, and I exercise and I move and, you know, uh, it, there's all, there's a lot of components here, but I would never, ever look back. I think this is the only way that, that we can survive is to eat. You know, for ourselves personally, for our own health, it's preventative health. It's so simple. It's so simple. The drug companies won't make money, but it's so simple. And the fact that I can have a treat, too, when I want to, then that's good. You know, I had oatmeal and cinnamon for breakfast and um, pumpkin seeds and some chia seeds. And somewhere today, (laughs) somewhere I'll have a little treat from my book, Uh, probably... (laughs) I'm just thinking, what will I have today? I don't know yet. Maybe some hot cocoa because it's chilly. Mm. But um, you know, Do you know you're, I mean, your, your interest, internist is right. It is hereditary, right? All of us have. If if we are if we're around, we are descended from countless generations of of people who whose bodies worked. Who, yeah. if you put it in the right environment and give it the right food, almost all of us. Could could live long, healthy, drug-free, disease-free lives. That's hereditary. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So. I I I agree with you. But then you know, today people look at family histories and they say, "Oh, there's cancer in your family, or there's heart disease." Well, we have genes, but we aren't. Our, you know, we can overcome these predispositions, if you will. 
by yeah, well, it's, it's very, like a family where everyone walked across the street blindfolded and they all are limping and on crutches and some of them died young and you go you know that's in your that's in your genes. Right. Yeah, so, I guess. So like, yeah, yeah, my bones will break if I get hit by a car. That's genetic programming, but I can keep my eyes open. True enough. That's <laughs> true enough. So I have one more question before before I let you go. Um, so you are a chef. You spend countless hours refining things. A lot of your recipes are pretty complex in that they require a lot of care and energy and effort and learning. But like when you when you get home and you're tired, what's a typical throw together meal that you will make that doesn't require the kind of culinary uh, skills? That, that you do professionally. Uh, I, I mean, I have a few of them, and I want to—I just want to say that the the recipes that are more complex, I have a game plan uh, in the book that says, "Oh, make this whenever you feel like it, and put it in the freezer for a month." Hmm. You know, this is so on. I believe that the most important thing is to keep the pantry and the fridge stocked so that I can just throw things together. And depending on the time of the year, if it's if the weather is warm, I'll throw together a gigantic salad. And I mean, <laughs> people look at my grocery cart and they wonder how many people are, are having dinner with me. Um, I like a big salad with all different kinds of greens and herbs and usually a leftover grain or bean. So that's a throw together warm weather sal- um, dinner meal. Mm-hmm. And in the, this time of the year, it tends to be soup. I think soup is so easy, and, and it's satisfying to me. That That's just what I love. So I will, you know, cook up extra beans, extra grains, and put them, if I haven't made, you know, a proper soup, put them together in a pot, add leftovers, you know, a little bit of this is leftover, a little bit of that's leftover, and make a soup. Um, the other night I had just come home from... And I was in Atlanta for almost a week, and there was very little available to me, but I had a sweet potato and an onion. I'm trying to think. There was one other thing. So I baked them, you know, by the time I kind of washed my face and took a shower, they were baked, and I just put them in a – I didn't even put them in the blender. I used an immersion blender this time and made a really nice soup of, you know, like – just baked vegetables, and it was delicious, just delicious. And the next morning I got up early and I went to the market and got my fresh produce. But it's, oh, you know, soup and salad are really fast, really, really, really fast. I I soak, I like oatmeal in the morning. I just really love oatmeal. So I prefer the steel-cut oats, and they mm-hmm. take a little longer to cook, as you know. So what I do is I will, you know, when I'm making my last cup of tea in the evening, I'll boil some extra water and pour them over the oats. So in the morning, they cook really quickly, and I always make enough for a couple days. They firm up and then put it in the fridge, and in the morning I'll scoop some out and add some extra liquid, and I've got oatmeal. So it's kind of really easy. Great. I'm I'm uh, I'm so glad to hear that because I think when people get into a different way of cooking, they feel like all their previous experience and skill sets have abandoned them, and they have to 
you know, crawl. And it's, I, I find I'm, you know, I love cookbooks and I love cooking from recipes for something new, but I rarely do it on a, yeah, on a day-to-day basis. I do it for, for parties. I do it for uh, curiosity or for a treat. But basically, I'm just throwing together the same few foods with, with variations. Yeah, me um, too. Me too. I mean, it, it, I like to cook something more complicated from time to time, but basically... Just as you said, you know, at the end of the day or beginning of a day, I just want something really delicious. Also, it tastes good. You know, you can control the People ask me, can I leave the salt out of your desserts? And I say, no. <laughs> I'm using a little bit in there, and there's a reason it will taste good. But don't eat prepared foods, and you won't have all this extra sugar and salt and fat and stuff. It's in the prepared foods plaza. I'm sure I'm saving a fortune, even with eating organic foods which is what I buy, that's my choice, is I go to, you know, one of the stores that I can take, bring food home or enjoy a meal at, and I go, what did they just say? How much did that bowl of soup cost in New York City? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yikes. I know, and I know, and there's so much so much smaller than, 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 than what I would bowl of yeah. right. from myself. You know, I, I can't hear you any longer. Can you hear me? Oh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I hear you fine. It's all crunchy here. Uh, uh, no, you're, no, you're, you're coming in loud and clear here, but uh, uh, I guess it's, I guess it's, it's a good cue to, uh, to, uh, to move, move on, on with our days. So, Frank Costner, the author of, of, of uh, Vegan Chocolate and a, a, uh, a luminary, luminary and guiding, guiding light in the world of vegan desserts and just being a great person generally. I want to thank you so much for your time to talk to us today. Thanks, Howard. Be well. Be well. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Bye.